Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 32 this morning. Let's begin there. A lot of the illustrations that I get are sent to me by people who know I love to read them, love to get a good laugh. And so somebody emailed me this. It's deartechsupport at maleintellect.com. Last year I upgraded from boyfriend 5.0 to husband 1.0. And I noticed that the new program began making unexpected changes to the accounting modules, like limiting access to flower and jewelry purchase applications that had operated flawlessly under Boyfriend 5.0. In addition, Husband 1.0 uninstalled many valuable programs such as Romance 1.0 and replaced them with undesirable programs such as NFL (laughs) 5.0 and NBA 3.0. Conversations 8.0 no longer runs and House Cleaning 2.6 simply crashes the program. I've tried running nagging 5.1 to fix these problems, but to no avail. Please advise, sign Desperate. Dear Desperate, keep in mind, Boyfriend 5.0 is an entertainment package, while Husband 1.0 is an operating system. Try to enter the command C colon forward slash I thought you loved me, and immediately install Tears 6.2. Husband 1.0 should automatically run Guilty 3.0 and Flower 7.0, which will take care of the problem. But remember, the overuse of this command will cause Husband 1.0 to activate Grumpy Silence 2.5 and Beer 6.1, an aggravating program that creates annoying, snoring loudly wave files and incoherent babble viruses. Under no circumstances are you to install Mother-in-Law 1.0 or a new boyfriend program. These are not supported applications and will crash Husband 1.0. In summary, Husband 1.0 is a great program but has limited memory and cannot learn applications quickly, signed Team Support. Getting to know somebody takes time. It's a lifelong process in many cases. It takes time, patience, and the willingness to disclose who that person is to the other. I remember when I first met my wife, Lenya, it was at a potluck at at my previous girlfriend's apartment. And uh, I was there for a potluck, and I noticed her across the room, and she was radiant. We met. We talked. We talked about God. We talked about music. And so a few days later, I thought, I want to get to know her better. So I asked her on a date. The first date was a concert at church. Good move. The second date was at a seafood restaurant, not knowing that at that time she hated seafood. But I didn't know yet. It takes time to know. And then... um, The third date was to the beach where she was to watch me surf. There were no waves that day at all. It was totally the Lord. 
And over time, we started to get to know each other. And um, sometime later, one particular evening where we had dinner together and we exchanged some of the deeper thoughts, our dreams, our hopes, what we wanted out of life. And at that moment, I thought, I want more than just the relationship that we've had. And that dating relationship moved into a love relationship. And we got married. Now, 27 years later, we're still getting to know each other. And it takes time. And I'll say this, that uh, wife 1.0 is a whole lot better than girlfriend 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, etc. I don't think I had more than four in my whole life. But anyway, we got married and we're learning about each other. We're learning to listen to each other and ask the right questions as that disclosure takes place. In, in this section of Exodus, God and Moses are interacting. And as they interact, we come to chapter 34, where God gives to Moses his autobiography. He gives Moses a list of things that he is and things that he does. It's a very unusual section, but I'm taking you back today to chapter 32, where the story begins. It begins with a revolt. And there's four four sections of this story. And the first is the revolt. A problem was happening in Israel. It's, it's what I call the uh-oh chapter. See, everything's so far so good. They're going through the wilderness. God is leading them. They're following. We come now to chapter 32, and it's uh-oh. It marks one of the lowest points in their whole history, a blot on their record. Verse 1, Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Moses is up on the mount, Mount Sinai, getting the law. He's taken a little too long. People get very impatient. It's ironic that at the very moment God is giving His revelation to Moses, the people quickly turn to imagination, and they cast an idol, a golden calf. Why a calf? Why a a symbol in the form of a calf? I believe it's simply conditioned response. They had been in Egypt, and part of the Egyptian worship system, they would have seen it, was the golden calf. It was a symbol of Apis the bull, one of the gods of Egypt that represented strength. And the legend said that Apis was the renewer of life, that a lightning flash came from heaven and struck a cow. Apis was born. And keep in mind, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And if you know the story, when they looked up where Moses was, they saw lightning flashes and heard thunder and felt the ground move. And it reminded them of that legend. And so in making a golden calf, it was their way of saying, our God is powerful, strong, mighty. But it violated the second commandment that God was giving to Moses. You shall have no graven images or carved images before me. So it begs this question now. Why did they do that? What's up with needing to make some physical, visible image of God because Moses hasn't come back? Why? Here's why, I believe. 
people have always had a problem with an invisible God. That's what moves people toward idolatry. They want to see something, touch something, relate physically to something. People have problems with an invisible God. I mean, think about it. How on earth can you have a personal relationship with a person you never see or hear or touch or read the facial expressions, the body language of? And so people are driven towards some kind of a physical, visible image. Years ago, a story came out that's been made into a movie several times called The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. And the idea of an invisible man, that sounds really cool at first. And it was great to be invisible, this guy at first, but after a while, it turned on him. Because he found out that nobody trusts somebody they can't see. He might be in the room hearing or seeing things, and their privacy is invaded. And and so instead of being cool, it became a horrible thing. And so we relate to the little boy who said, Mommy, are you sure God's up there? Oh, yes, honey, God is up there. And he said, wouldn't it be great if you just poke his head out every now and then so we could see him? We can relate to that. Fundamentally, that's what we'd all like. We relate to Isaiah, who in 45, chapter 45 of his book said, Truly, you're a God who hides himself. And here we are as Christians. Part of our looking forward to the future has to do with the promise that we're going to see him face to face one day. Titus chapter 2, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's promised us. We want that. We, at some level, have a problem with a God who's invisible, and we want Him visible. And until we see Him, we're called to live not by sight, but by faith. We live by faith and not by sight. That's the condition we're at now. Another question is often asked in sections of Scripture like this. It's simply this. Why is this so bad? Why does God get so mad at these people for making an image? And moreover, what's so bad about it? I mean, the whole second commandment, no graven images. How come? Well, there's a couple reasons. Number one, because there is no image in all the world that can represent God. There's no image that can represent the totality of His character because God, by His very nature, is unlimited. And as soon as you cast an image, you have limited, in some form, the limitless God. So you're obscuring His glory. So yeah, here's Apis the bull, or this golden calf, representing to them Yahweh, their God. God's strong. God's powerful. But that image does not speak of His moral attributes, His love, His patience, His kindness, His justice. It limits God. And so, no wonder the Lord in Isaiah chapter 40 asks probingly, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? The workman molds an image, and the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. He's saying, Can you see how ludicrous this is? Honey, I'm going to be home late tonight. i got to make God. Oh, but look look at, look at, here's my God. He's just not God. He's a 24-karat God. 
with a silver chain, put it on the mantle. You've had to make your God, and now you have to carry your God wherever you want to see Him. Here's the second reason. Not only is there no image in the world that can represent Him, but as soon as you and I are projecting what we think God is, and therefore we make an image of that, we're guilty of making God into our image. We're reversing the whole process. We're made in God's image. We have certain moral attributes and characteristics that reflect the personality of God. But when we cast an image, we're essentially saying, that's the part of God that I want to focus on and nothing else. We're making God into our image. So they did this. Moses comes down from the mountain. He's angry. He's got the Ten Commandments with him. He goes up to Aaron. You've you got to read this excuse. Verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Now listen to his, Aaron's response. So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. For this Moses, the man that brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Now watch this. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. Okay, if there's ever a list of the top ten lame excuses of all times, you got to put this in it. Moses, dude, I'm serious. Like, I threw the gold in, and it just walked out. Yeah, okay. Lame excuses. By the way, it didn't stop here. I had a policeman friend tell me about all the lame excuses he's heard when he's pulled people over. And then I found an actual recorded list of sort of like the best ones. A policeman pulled over a guy for running two red lights, and he said to the police officer, Look, it's a V8. You try stopping it. (laughs) Guy was speeding. Policeman pulled him over, and the guy's excuse was, Well, I had to speed to get in front of you. I'm hurrying to the service station because I'm running out of fuel. (laughs) So a lame excuse. It's one of the lowest points in their history. It's a revolt of these people. Now that, that revolt takes us to chapter 33 of Exodus. Brings us to a request now of Moses. The revolt with the golden calf causes God to say, look, I'm going to remove my presence from you altogether, but I'm going to send in my place an angel to represent me. Look at verse 2 of chapter 33. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Termite. Oh, that's not in there. And the Jeb... I just do that to see if you're listening. And the Jebusite termites in there? No. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you're a stiff-necked people. When the people heard these grave tidings that God wasn't coming, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Now Moses is so disappointed at this point. He kind of goes into a tailspin. He thinks, I I just got to get alone and talk to God. So he goes out to meet with God at a little tent outside the camp called the Tabernacle of Meeting. It's just a place like a prayer room where Moses could talk to God. 
And he says, God, look, I really need you to come with us. I need your presence. And I want to know your ways. And there's this beautiful interchange like two friends would just pour out their hearts to one another. And the culmination of the prayer is in verse 18 of chapter 33. And he said, please show me your glory. And then he, God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here's a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. And so it will be that while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Here's the bottom line. Moses wanted to experience God more than anything else in his life. He wanted to see God. God, show me your glory. What does that mean? Glory, the word in Hebrew, kabod, means to be heavy or to have weight to something. And the idea typically in the Bible refers to a person's weighty reputation or high honor, honor of position of great honor. One translation puts it this way. Lord, show me your own self. In other words, I want to see a full disclosure of your glorious person. I want to see you. Now, why does he ask for that? Well, probably because he's about to go through. He's already had a difficult time with these people. He knows he's going to have to lead them on through the wilderness. If he can just see God, it'll be enough for him. Now, this is not... Unique In the New Testament, there was one of the disciples named Philip who said to Jesus, remember, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. That's all we need. Of course it would be. If you could see God, it would carry you through anything. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But if you go back to our verse, verse 20, God is saying, look, Moses, You can't see me or you'll die. Mortal man cannot handle the full effulgence of God's glory. If he did, it would be like a bug and a bug zapper. You know when a bug comes to the light and goes to those little electrically charged zapper? What happens to the bug? Gone. That would happen to Moses. No man can see me and live. However, God does accommodate Moses' request to some degree and gets to have some experience where he sees the radiance of God, not from the face, but as God says, from the back. Now, I have a question. Why did Moses ask for this? Why did Moses ask to see visibly the glory of God? Show me your glory. Now, I'll tell you why I'm asking the question. Because think of what Moses has already seen and experienced. It would be enough for most of us. We'd stop right there. I mean, Moses' experience with God so far has been greater than all of our experiences with God put together. He saw a burning bush and God talking to him from a burning bush. Do you ever have one of those? I haven't. He saw plagues fall on Egypt. He saw the children of Israel protected. He watched a body of water open up and they went through it on dry land and then cover up their enemies behind them. 
on and on and on. He has seen and experienced so much. And yet he says, I want more. I want your glory. Why? I'll tell you why. Because no matter how spiritual you are, or how theologically informed you may be, or knowledgeable you are, at your very core and my very core, though we've experienced God's presence to some degree in our Christian walk, we really want to see Him visibly. We want to see what Moses is asking for, show me your glory. I'll tell you what it's like. Whenever I'm absent from my family, I take pictures with me. Now, I can carry them now on my phone or computer, but before those days, I actually had a little bedstand frame that would open up, picture of my wife on one side, picture of my son on the other, and wherever I go, whatever hotel, I'd set it out there. And I'd look at it. It would remind me of them because I'd miss them. Now, here I have a a representation of, of them in a picture. It wasn't enough. I never said, well, you know, I have their picture. I can stay here for a few years. This is fine. Just their picture, that's enough. No, looking at their picture accentuated the loss that I had for them personally. I I could call them on the phone, hi, how are you? And hearing their voice just also accentuated the loss. I wanted intimate reunion with them. I wanted to see them again. I wanted to put it in the words of the story, see their glory their face, their expressions, their body language. Well, here's Moses. He has seen, he has heard, he's experienced already a lot with God. But Moses is not satisfied. And you know what? Neither will you be until you and I see him face to face. Now listen carefully. Whatever worship experiences or miraculous things you've ever experienced with God up to this point, All of the great, spiritual, deep, worshipful times with God were never meant to satisfy you, simply to stimulate a thirst for more. You need to know that. And I can prove it. If you've ever had a real great time where in your own personal devotions you read the Bible or you pray or you sing, and for some reason that day God just seems so present or at a worship service, or at a retreat. Wow, God was there. I've never experienced that. You don't walk away going, I'm done. Been there, done that. I'd never need anything like that again. That's enough to tide me over. No, you go, you know, that was so cool. I want to see and experience that again. And heaven will be the culmination of all of our worship experiences. All of these things just whet our appetite. I give to you the words of Tim Stafford. I'm rereading his book, Knowing the Face of God. He writes about this. I believe this longing can only be fulfilled when our eyes are opened on the loving and glorious face of God. Such will someday be our joy, but not yet. The Bible does not hint that our intimacy with God can be satisfied through prayer or through ecstatic worship experiences or through the Bible. If Moses could not get what he wanted, then we should not be too surprised at our own sense of incompleteness. Our longing is a mark of God's touch. We long to know Him completely because we've come to know Him in part. 
Now I've got to just add a little PS to this, a little note. Fast forward years later, when Moses got his prayer answered, not on Mount Sinai, but on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he, along with his buddy Elijah, saw Jesus appear in his glory, it says, in Luke chapter 9. Foretaste of coming attractions. Okay, so there was a revolt. Moses had a request. God, I want to see you. I want your glory. And if he didn't get that, the question is, well, what did he get? What did God give him? He gave him a revelation. Look at chapter 34 now, beginning in verse 5. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed... Notice that. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed... Here's God talking. The Lord... The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. Now, he didn't see God directly. God said, you can't see my face and live. I know that's what you want. You can't have it. Rather, what did God do? He proclaimed, it says. God will give him now a ninefold description of his attributes. Now, please see the difference between what Moses wanted and what he got. He didn't get a sign from heaven. He did did not get an apparition or a vision of heaven. Did not get the face of Jesus in a tortilla. He He got what? What did he get? He got words. He got words. God, I want to see you. Moses, come here. Let me tell you about myself. Let me give to you my autobiography. Let me give you words that describe me. It's not what Moses asked for. He gave Moses wonderful words that describe who God is and what God does. Now, here's what I'm getting at. Sometimes you ask for something from God and you say, God, I really need that. And have you discovered that God doesn't always think you need what you think you need? And so you don't get it, even though you cry for it. I really want that. I need that. And God says, no, I know what you need more than you know what you need. Here's what you need. This is what I'll give you. So in the New Testament... Paul really said he needed a miraculous healing, right? He had what he called a thorn in the flesh. And he said, three times I begged God to take it away from me and heal me. God, I really need a miracle. I need to be healed. Did he get it? Nope. God said, you don't need that. My grace is all you need. And my strength will be made perfect in your weakness, Paul, because when you're weak, you're going to be relying on me every day. So here's Paul saying, I need that. And God says, don't need that. Here's what you need. Here's Moses saying, I need to see you. God says, you don't need that. And gave him words, a verbal proclamation and description of God. Okay, pause and go forward to the New Testament. After Jesus died and he rose from the dead, 
Not everybody knew he had risen from the dead, not even all of his disciples. And a couple of those disciples were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Remember the story, Luke chapter 24. And they're kind of walking like this, bummed out, talking to one another, what a bummer, what a drag. Life's horrible. Jesus comes walking alongside of them. They don't know it's him. And he goes, hey, how come you guys are so bummed out? I'm paraphrasing. It's the NSV, the new skip version. (laughs) And they said, dude, are you a stranger around here? Don't you know what's happened? The things that have gone on? Jesus goes, like what? And they tell him about Jesus. And it says this, and beginning at Moses, Jesus expounded to them all of the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus rises from the dead, comes up to the disciples, doesn't give them a sign, doesn't glow for them over in the corner, doesn't go, watch this, da-da. He gives them a Bible study. A Bible study? Words? Yeah, words. And you know what happened? This is what they did. The disciples said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked with us on the road and while He opened the Scriptures to us? That's always fascinated me. They got heartburn. Biblical heartburn. And what's interesting is it wasn't because they saw some visible, miraculous sign. Okay, he was alive from the dead, but it was the Scriptures that they had been raised with. They'd heard all those stories. They were Jewish kids all their lives. The same familiar stuff, but it's like they'd never heard it like that before. They understood it now. It's like opening a curtain, letting the light flood in the room, flooding all the dark corners, and they walked away going, I get it. Didn't our hearts burn within us as He spoke the words to us? I think you know where I'm going with this. Everything you and I need is found right here in the words of God. Man shall not live by bread alone. That's physical and visible. But by every word of God. Peter put it, put it this way. Everything you'll ever need for life and godly living comes through the knowledge of Him who called us. Everything you need comes from His Word. I heard about a man who always wanted to go on a cruise. He saved his whole life to go on a cruise. He finally got up enough money to buy a ticket. Well, here's his mind, his thinking. He goes, I have enough money for the cruise. I just don't have enough money for all that great food that they have on those boats. So he bought a ticket, and when he packed, he packed bread, peanut butter, and a little jelly. He got above, on board, unpacked, put his bread and peanut butter away, and he'd go out, and every day he'd walk by the food line, the beautiful meat and cheese and crap and lobster, and God, so good. He'd walk by it, go to his room, peanut butter up his bread, eat it, And he did this for like a couple of weeks. Well, it was like the last day of the cruise. And he's had enough of this peanut butter. He can't handle this anymore. He walks by that food line. He stops a porter and he grabs and he goes, Look, please, I'll wash dishes. I'll do anything. I just want a meal. One meal. That's all I want. I've eaten peanut butter for two weeks. The porter looks at him like, Are you weird? He says, Don't you know that when you buy the ticket for the cruise, all the food comes free? It's part of the package deal. 
poor bummer guy. Two weeks he's had peanut butter and he could have had the whole meal. Well, that's like a lot of Christians I know. Always looking for something more, searching for something more in the Christian life that others don't have. I want more power. I want more of the Holy Spirit. I want more blessings, more glory, more, more, more. And God's saying, it's yours. It's always been. Everything you need, I've given you in my words. That if you apply to your life, you'll see things happen. Now I have a question for you. Are you as excited about his words as you are about his wonders? Because I know some people, some Christians, who would have to answer that honestly, no, I'm not. I want the miracles and the wonders. And if I don't get that, if I have to settle for like a Bible study, God is asking you, are you as excited about his words as you are about his wonders? God proclaims His name. He gives a list of nine attributes that are His reputation. It's so cool that we're going to spend next time looking at this autobiography of God in this section. And this is the only place in the Bible where God does this. Lists His own attributes, His own autobiography. It's referred to 12 times after this. The Scripture will point back to this great time where the Lord appeared to Moses. So let's, let's look at verse 8 and we'll close. We've seen the revolt of the people, the request of Moses, the revelation that God gave to Moses. And let's see the response. What does Moses do? Verse 8. So Moses made haste. That means he hurried up. Doesn't mean he actually made... Excuse me, God, I'm making haste. I'll be right there. And he bowed his head toward the earth and he worshipped. Okay, here's Moses not getting what he asked for but worshiping God after God revealed Himself in His proclamation or words to Moses. You never read of Moses going, Ah, hey God, uh, time out. This is not what I asked for. Uh, This is not what I signed up for. I want tingles, man. I want an emotional movement in me. you got to perform here. No, he worships God. Because... Moses saw God as he is in the verbal description of what God said he was and in getting the whole picture based on what God said. Moses also saw something about himself. And in bowing to worship, it's as if he's saying, God, it's really not about me. It's not about what I want. It's really all about you. You're God and I'm not. See, up to this point, it's been all about Moses. I got to see you. I can't make it through unless I. you got to do this for me. He gets this revelation from God and he worships. He's saying, you're God. It's not about me. It's about you. Now, this is a message that needs to be emphasized over and over again today in our generation. Because frankly, we have lived in and live in now what's called a me generation. It's all about me. It's all about my needs. Bless me. Give something to me. I felt good when? It was years ago. I'm thinking 24, 23 years ago. We weren't even in this building. We were in our other building on Snow Heights. Some of you are old enough to remember that. Well, when we were there, it was a Sunday morning. I think it was second service. And um, I remember a couple came up to me. It was their first time at church. i never forget this because the guy just sort of rose up like this cocked himself back and introduced himself and he says, 
this is my wife. We're here to see what you have to offer. I should have bit my tongue. I know that. I just couldn't help myself. I heard those words come out. And when he said, we're here to see what you have to offer, I said, well, that's great. But you know what? What do you have to offer? And isn't really that something we need to evaluate? It's not about what I have to offer or what you have to offer to me. It's what we're offering to Him. It's about Him. And every revelation of any kind that God gives to us through His Word demands that humble response of, I worship you in what I just found out about you. That's the response. That's the right response. So, we close, but I want to leave you with three take-home truths. Ready? Three truths for you to apply and take home. You can write these down. Unless you have like a perfect memory, you can remember everything all the time. If not, take these down. Number one, longing is part of loving. Longing is part of loving. The longing that you have in your heart to know God and be close to God is a good thing. It's part of loving Him. It's a mark of God's touch in your life. In fact, God will respond to that longing. We read in Hebrews just a few weeks back, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Longing is part of loving. But understand this, that your longing won't be fully satisfied until you leave this earth and see Him in heaven. Because you can't handle seeing Him right now. You would... So, as you're longing for God, and you keep longing for Him, God isn't saying no to you. He's just saying not yet to you. It's very different. Children learn this very quickly. They're 12 years old. Can I drive, Mom and Dad? And you don't say, no, never. Or we'd like to. It might be a better thing. And we say, not yet, honey. Not yet. One day you'll be able to do it. Or when it gets to be around November and the Christmas decorations start going up. Well, actually, now it's like August. When the Christmas decorations start going up and we start seeing lights and pine trees and we smell candle scents and we start getting then into December and our children, it's like too much to bear because now they see the presents, a few of them under the tree, and they might ask you around December 22nd, Can I open my presents? And you say, Not yet. Because Christmas is special. You're going to do it on that day. We're going to wait for that day. I remember when I was young and I wanted a bicycle. And I was thinking I was going to get one. It was Christmas Eve and it was really early, like 2 in the morning. I got out of bed and I snuck into the room where the presents were, where the tree was. And I thought in the dim light I saw my bicycle under a bunch of stuff. And I started moving over to it, not knowing my mom was right behind me. She followed me. And she went, Ahem! Not yet. Back to bed. She wasn't saying, no, never can you ever have that bicycle. So she you got to wait. Wait a few more hours. Go back to bed. So longing is a part of loving, and God is saying, you'll get to see me, but not yet. Number two, worshiping is better than wondering. Rather than just wondering, how come God won't do this for me or that for me? That other person says God, like, spoke to him today. How about just worshiping 
God for what he's given you in his word. And when you worship him, you're saying, whatever you've done for me, whatever you've given me, I just acknowledge you. And I'm saying it's enough for now. I trust you. I worship you. Longing is a part of loving. Worshiping is better than wondering. Here's the third point. And we close with this. Invisible does not mean unavailable. Just because you can't see God doesn't mean God isn't there and won't work in your life. But I can't see God. But He can see you. Job discovered that. He was looking for God. He said, I go forward to find God and He's not there. I go backwards and I can't perceive Him. But then He said, but He knows the way that I take. And when I come through this, I'll come forth as gold. David In Psalm 139 wrote, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, behold, even there your hand will lead me. Years ago on television, there was a circus. It was a circus made for television. And the primary act in the circus was the tiger act. Bengal tigers placed in a cage and the trainer would go in, the doors would be locked behind him, and he's in a room, a cage, with all of these tigers. So in one particular episode, the lights went on, the camera zoomed in, the trainer was locked in the cage with these tigers, when all of a sudden something happened and the lights went out. Now put yourself in the trainer's shoes. You're locked in a cage with animals you can't see, but they can see you because the cats see in the dark. 20 to 30 long seconds, that awareness of they can see me. I can't see them. He just stood there till the lights went on 30 seconds later and the show continued. God can see in the dark. God can see your thoughts. And that should be, well, it can be a terrifying thing depending on how you live, but it should be a comforting thing. God can see me. He'll walk with me. He loves me. I can't see him. I can't perceive him. But he knows the way that I take. And we're not talking about Bengal tigers. We're talking about the lion of the tribe of Judah. The one who paid the price for your sins and mine and loves you with an everlasting love. Invisible does not mean unavailable. Final question. And I'm done. Just like the children of Israel had an excuse and Aaron had an excuse... I threw the stuff in the fire. Calf walked out. Lame excuse. Question, what lame excuse are you still hiding behind to not give your life to Christ? Whatever excuse. I'll do it next time. Well, my so-and-so won't like it. Or I'm waiting for it. It's a lame excuse. When are you going to let it go and do what God always created you to do? And that is know Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we've gathered together from different parts of this city, this community. We're gathered in this fourth service of this weekend. And you don't see numbers. You see us as individuals. You know us by name. You love us intimately and deeply. And you have a plan that is unique and distinct to every one of our lives. You're awesome. We worship you for what you've revealed to us this morning. That's our response. Thank you for the way you have and continue to reveal yourself through the proclamation of your word. But I pray for anybody here who 
has walked away from you or isn't walking with you today, doesn't know you personally, is hiding behind some reason, some excuse. Maybe they've never come to you before. Maybe it's all brand new. They've been good. They've been searching. They've been even religious, spiritual to some degree, but they've never said yes to Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that they would do that today because you love them. I pray their plan for you would be realized starting today. Father, our prayer goes out for these right now. Those hands mean something, not only to them, but to you. You see their longing, and you're a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. As they seek you today to be made right with you, we pray you confirm your love in their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.